you would take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 7. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. We're going to look together at verses 13 through 20 in the time that we have this morning. We are nearing the end of Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, nearing the end of Jesus' proclamation of the Sermon on the Mount, and nearing the end of our series in the Sermon on the Mount. We have uh, this week and next week, Lord willing, to go in our examination of these verses, and we've come to a place in the Sermon on the Mount that I would refer to as the invitation portion of the sermon. Jesus is drawing to a conclusion all that he has said in these chapters that we've been studying together and now inviting us into this radical transformation, the adoption of this radically different worldview to be citizens of a radically different kingdom by faith in himself. Now, this is the way it's cast. You have a decision to make. You are, so to speak, at a fork in the road. You will go one way or the other. You will go the narrow way that leads to life, or you will go the broad path that leads to destruction. It is always the case under the preaching of God's Word, even at our devotional reading of God's Word, that a certain decision must be made. Either we will be subject to the authority of Jesus over our life, humbly bowing our knee and acknowledging the truth of His Word, conforming to His will for our life, or we will kick against that, resist against that, and go our way. That would be the broad path that leads to destruction. But this morning, as much as any other morning, if there has ever been a text that insists upon our choosing this day whom we will serve, which way we will go, it is the passage before us today. If you found your way to Matthew 7, verse 13, stand with me out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. Here the Bible says, Jesus speaking, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. There is no religious system, there is no worldview, there is no lifestyle that says, come join together with us and we'll all go to hell together, right? None are quite so forthright. All of them market their system well. Their behaviors, their patterns, their worldview, their lifestyle, coin it as you will. They're all believed to be by their adherents to be the right way to go. The proverb says, there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. The dangerously deceptive issue at hand is this. We are all equally convinced that we are on the right path. 
out of necessity by our very nature. If we didn't, we'd get on another path. Now, we can at times pay lip service to a different way while continuing on the path that leads to destruction. But deep down in our heart of hearts, if we truly believed, if we truly understood the disaster that awaits us at the end of that broad path that leads to destruction, we'd never travel that way in the first place. Jesus says again, you're at this fork in the road, and you're going to choose today between the narrow path that leads to life and the broad road that leads to destruction. And you've got to be cautious as the decision is made because there is a certain enticement about that broad way. And, and there's, there's certain things about even the narrow path that tend to turn us back. If we could see things as they are, this would really be an easy decision to make, right? If you could really see as God sees the end from the beginning, these types of decisions would be easy for you. But we experience, it's human nature that we don't often forego momentary pleasure for lasting joy. If you put candy and vegetables in front of my two-year-old, he will throw the vegetables and eat the candy. If you put before most teenagers, apart from Jesus, the opportunity for momentary fleeting passion or pleasure in any form, they're going to usually choose that over the standard of, of purity and righteousness before Christ, which, by the way, on the back end, promises gladness and joy that this world cannot beset. As adults, if you put, for instance, before many Americans, financial stability and a new car, they're most often, it seems, at least by observation, going to choose the new car. We could list a long line of examples of that. And maybe new car is not what it is for you. Maybe it's something even more excessive than that. But I think you get the point, right? Our tendency is instant gratification. We don't do well with foregoing immediate pleasure. And that, that whole tendency in us plays to the deceptive nature of of, of choosing between these two paths, the narrow path that leads to life and the broad way that leads to destruction. At face value, we might ask, why in the world would anyone ever choose to go the broad way that leads to destruction? And to help us, perhaps, with our tendency towards self-deception and outright deception, Jesus provides us with some answers. Look to verses 13 and 14. The Bible says here, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few who find it. The very way that Jesus describes the road, the way the options are set before us is descriptive of an ease and a comfort about the broad road versus difficulty on the narrow way. The reason many will choose the broad road that leads to destruction over a narrow way that leads to life is because, quite frankly, there is ease and comfort to be experienced on the broad road that leads to, destru to destruction, at least in the short term. There are times when the way of destru destruction seems right. 
There, there's, a, there's an apparent rightness about the broad road for a variety of different reasons. One, it seems as though those who are on the broad road at certain intervals of their life are having more fun. At least that's the way we observe them from the outside looking in. There are more people on the broad road, so naturally our, ten, our tendency would be to think that this must be the way to go. That's where everyone else is going. That has to be the way that we should go. And Jesus is really honest about the fact that there is some short-term ease and comfort along the broad way. If you are traveling along with your GPS and you come to the end of your ride and are reporting, as men often do, as to how their travel went, you would describe the ease with which you traveled on the interstate and perhaps some of the difficulties you experienced on the more narrow roads you traveled along your course. The idea of a broad road versus a narrow road suggests comfort and ease. And indeed, there is a certain level of comfort and ease to be experienced on the broad road, at least from our perspective. Now, what you don't often get the opportunity to see is the destruction that comes on the back end. What you can't afford to forget, forget in your assessment of the broad road that leads to destruction is that in spite of what you see in terms of comfort and ease, it does, after all, end in destruction. The great bait that Satan often dangles before us looks so enticing. You don't see the hook until you've been had. You must remember that the broad path always ends in destruction. The broad path doesn't require of us the same level of sacrifice that the narrow path does. This description suggests this, right? Jesus is really honest about the difficulties that come with the narrow path in the same way that the broad path is pictured as relatively easy and to some extent comfortable along the way. He points out very clearly that the narrow path is difficult and there are few who find it. There are hardships and challenges on the narrow path and travel on the narrow path requires a certain degree of sacrifice not necessary on the broad way. You'll think in terms of of a turnstile entering into a stadium or a subway station. There's not a lot of room for much to pass through. Going the narrow way, entering through the narrow gate means that all your baggage must be left behind. There's room for such things on the broad road. There's a certain difficulty that comes with the narrow way that's foreign to the broad road that leads to destruction. But again, that road always ends in destruction. The way of destruction here may seem right because it's the way everyone is going. Jesus, again, is very honest. There are many who go the way of destruction and few who go the way that leads to life. Here again, Jesus said there will be more people who go the way of destruction than the few who are the remnant of God's people who go the way of life. Y'all tracking with me this morning? Sometimes it feels right to go the way of destruction because everyone is going that way. There's already some appeal there because there's short-term return on bad decisions that may bring fleeting passions or pleasures. And then there's just a lot of folks going over there. Like if I ambled into Longview Point this morning as a guest and I didn't know where to go and there's all these people going in different directions, I, I can tell you what I do. I just go the direction that most people went. Because I don't want to be the fool who's ambling around not knowing where to go, you know. In traffic, you're leaving an event, lots of people headed in the same direction. I'm going the direction that everyone else going goes. There's something that feels right about that, right? But again, Jesus is calling us to this whole countercultural kingdom, 
to a kingdom that is not of this world, that often goes right when the world goes left, that sees things as right side up when the world sees them as upside down. Again, everything about the kingdom Jesus has described in the Sermon on the Mount is different than the way this world operates. The way ahead is back. The way to be first is to be last. The way to be master is to be servant of all. Everything about this kingdom is different. As Christian folk, we are not given over to mob rule and group think. We walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called when everyone else goes the wrong way. This is deeply rooted in that ethical principle we talked about last week, loving our enemies and doing unto others as we would have them do unto us. We can be enticed by the sheer volume of people who are traveling a road that leads to destruction to join them in their travels if we're not very, very, very careful. The more society and the world in general drifts away from a certain Christian value system foundation, the stranger your decisions are going to appear, the the more weird you're going to look to your friends and neighbors in following after Jesus. It used to be that there were some, perhaps some wrinkles about life that kind of set you off or made you distinct from those around you, but the greater the drift, the the greater the distance between us and the culture around us. We should expect to get stranger and stranger and stranger as time goes by. We we don't now, but for elementary school, we, we homeschooled all of our kids, and we always got counsel that we needed to make sure that they have these socializing opportunities, which was always a little bit funny to me. But in any event, the warning was, they'll be weird, to which my response was always, that's kind of the goal, right? That's kind of what we're looking for, to be different than the, the children in this world, the children at their age, and to be prepared to meet the world with victory under the power of the gospel. We want to make sure that we're investing well now so that as they grow older, we're able to entrust them more and more with stewardship over their decisions in their life to be able to walk faithfully into adolescence and adulthood and to be the young men that would bring honor and glory to Jesus, to choose for themselves wives who love Christ as even as they do, and to rear children in the training and admonition of the Lord, you should expect and perhaps even establish a goal that as time goes by and you are sanctified by the work of the Spirit in your life, that you would grow more and more distant from the things and the ways of this world and stranger in the eyes of the people of this world than you have ever been before. The way of destruction is the way most people go. I'll tell you something else that makes this decision difficult. It's not just the fact that there's lots of people on the road that leads to destruction. It's the fact that there aren't many people on the road that leads to life. Most of you know my salvation story, how God saved me. I was 19, almost 20 years old in that college age window of time in life when socializing and friends are such a critical part of of your growth and, and you're establishing relationships that carry you into the rest of your life. Your high school friends, I know that four-year window seems like your whole world hangs on that. 20 years from now, you're still going to be talking about that like it was half of your life, but in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't make that much difference. Most of those folks you spend time with there, you'll hardly know 20 years from now. But those college age, that window of time, young adulthood, the young men and women that you meet there, one of them going to be your husband in the case of you ladies, one of them going to be your wife in the case of you young men. 
That's probably the most critical decision you'll make in that window of time in your life. And God saved me. And, and I was a radically lost young man. I did not have any Christian friends. And to be quite frank, with the exception of my granny, I had no Christian family to speak of. And God saved me. And there's an eagerness in those early days that says run back to that crowd and be salt and light and reach them with the gospel. And I genuinely wanted to do that then, and I genuinely want to do that now. And God has been faithful in granting a little fruit among those old friends and even some of my family, my very real family. But for the most part, I wasn't able to bear under the temptation that came with spending time in that setting, and I had to withdraw. But for a single elderly man in our congregation, one senior adult, I was without a friend for an extended season of time. And those first two years of walking with Jesus were some of the loneliest days of my life. There is great enticement to the broad road where there's lots of folks and lots of social activities and lots of opportunities for engagement, but don't you ever forget that the broad road always ends in destruction. And at the same time, we ought not forget that the narrow path, though difficult along the way, always ends in life. There are reasons that people choose to go the broad way. There are reasons that people can resist the narrow path. There's, there's another reason indicated in verses 15 and following here that I think is pretty compelling. Jesus says in verses 13 through 14, Enter the narrow gate, don't go the broad road that leads to destruction. And then he begins in what remains of the Sermon on the Mount to warn against certain pitfalls, against certain dangers that might entice you to the broad path or make you reluctant to travel the way that leads to life. He warns against the false prophets in verses 15 through 20. In verses 21 through 23, he warns against false conversion. And in verses 24 through 27, Jesus warns against false gospels. All can beset you in traveling the narrow way that leads to life. It's here, the false prophets, that I want us to focus on for a few minutes. Jesus says in verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. They, they come to you in a way that seems endearing. They identify with you, right? You are sheep. They come to you in sheep's clothing. But Jesus said you have to be careful because on the inside, they're really ravaging wolves who wish to tear you to pieces. Now, ordinarily, when we think about false prophecy or false prophets, we think exclusively in a religious context. And it is true that there are false prophets in a religious context. As early as the New Testament period, within years of the establishment of the church of Jesus Christ, there were those who gave themselves over to false prophecy. By the time we come to the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, near the end of the first century, John warns the church that it's not that one false prophet has gone out. It's not that there's one antichrist that you have to be on guard against. It is that there are many antichrists and many false prophets, and they've already gone out. And in some cases, they even went out from within the congregation to which John writes. And those false prophets have grown more and more sophisticated through the years. They are clever, and they are cunning. 
They come to you in a way that seems endearing, as Jesus describes here. They, they identify with you. They are like unto you. You're a sheep, and they wear sheep's clothing. But inwardly, they are ravaging wolves, and they seek to devour you. In their new sophistication, false prophets have invented ways or adapted ways to co-opt the language of the gospel so that their message is difficult for many Christians to distinguish between the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It can be a difficult t thing at times for some Christians to be able to identify the fallacy in the preaching of so many false preachers. The new thing, perhaps the latest development in false, pro uh, false prophecy in the Western world, is not so much the presence of a false gospel in a preaching message, but the absence of any gospel at all in the preaching message. There are many false prophets you might sit and listen to today, and you might walk away from that message and affirm the lion's share of what they said. It may be affirming or encouraging to you. It may even be practically helpful in your life, but it knows nothing of the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, nothing of the power of the resurrection, and bears little semblance to the message of the apostles we find in the New Testament. It's one expression of false prophecy. There are others that more dangerously take and distort the message of the gospel to mean something altogether different than what our Lord Jesus Christ intended. Now, I would warn you that somewhere along the way, the American church has lost, it seems, its ability to discern the true from the false. And brothers and sisters, you should pray for godly wisdom and discernment, and you should do so with confidence that, the, as the Bible says, that if we ask for wisdom, God is pleased to grant it. You've studied that passage just recently in your connect groups. You need wisdom with regards to these issues, wisdom that I don't see a great number of people exercising as they tune in or read various false prophets who are actively at work and prospering greatly within the Western church. Be careful. But it's not just a religious context in which the false prophets Jesus seems to have in view exist. In, in fact, it's not necessary that there be a religious tone or message at all about this false prophet's message. Even within the secularism that seems to be overwhelming Western society and the atheism that seems to be advancing militantly or the agnosticism that's sort of embraced by those who are a little ho-hum with regards to religion, there is an air of religiosity about that. And even absent the air of religiosity, a false prophet may be nothing more than a simple a, a person who simply invites you into some activity, some worldview, some lifestyle that proves to be destructive in your experience. The picture in my imagination in reading this passage is of the, the poor guy who gets a sign to stand outside the car dealership and spin the sign, you know. And he's inviting you to come in and see there's a deal that you can't find anywhere else. And it won't be matched tomorrow or the next day. This is a one-day-only advertisement. You must come and enjoy this pleasure in this moment, and it will end well for you. Only in this case, without question, the end is destruction. 
Jesus is painting the picture here at this fork in the road where we find ourselves this morning of, of various voices who are standing at that fork in the road, at this crossroads of life, and all are appealing to you to come this way or that. The false prophet sells all of the promises, all of the ease, and all of the comfort with traveling this way with narrow mention of the destruction this road concludes with. And frankly, it's easier in the here and now, given our tendencies, to market the broad path than it is to narrow path. The message of the false prophet is, look at this. We're all caught up in this rapturous moment of satisfaction and fulfillment. And our message is, take up the cross and follow Jesus. And on the other side, where the pain and the suffering and the misery of the present age aren't fit to be compared, there is a glory that awaits us in Christ Jesus. You see, they're selling what is visible. We're, we're, we're selling an inheritance that is yet to be received. Citizenship in a kingdom that both is and is yet to come. You need to be really careful, really careful, that you don't fall for the cunning and clever devices of the false prophet, whether those come to you in a religious context or in a purely secular context. The world is filled with pro false prophets, and they're really good at marketing their product. No one signs up to go to hell. No one signs up to enter into destruction. For that matter, practically speaking, in the here and now, no one signs up to go to jail, right? No one says, enlist me, here I go. No, no one signs up to live a life that is an absolute disaster. But it happens every day. It happens every day when we fail to count the cost. Jesus says you're going to have to make a certain determination about the character of the voices that are enticing you to go their way here at this fork in the road. In verse 16, the Bible says you'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. In other words, you begin to look at the character of their life and make an assessment about the character of the messenger. Consequently, make an assessment about the character of the message itself. I hope I can use this example without offending anyone greatly. I was thinking about this earlier, and we were having a conversation about this the other day. For, for Brandy and I, our, our, our wedding was beautiful, but our wedding rehearsal was a disaster. Everybody but us acted a fool at the wedding. And I, I, I said jokingly, but half seriously in the last service, there were about six cartons of cigarettes smoked in the church parking lot, no telling how much. It wasn't us. It wasn't us. No telling how much alcohol drank out there. I mean, it was just a big old fat disaster. It's a million wonders God didn't just kill everybody. People acting crazy all over the place. And if I, if I heard one time, this was the way the advice would go. If I heard one time, I heard it a dozen, and it would go something like this. Now, again, give me a moment, I'll clean it all up. Son, I've been married three times. Let me tell you about how this needs to go. Now listen, listen, some, some people experience divorce and remarriage and those things, and God restores that and works beautifully in their life, and there's, there's gospel grace, and there's always gospel grace, and I rejoice in that. But it was cast such that the more marriages I have, the more experience I have in this area, and so my advice might be good for you. Now let me just tell you what Jesus is saying in this passage. 
if you're looking for marriage advice, you're not looking for the brother who set the record on the most marriages and remarriages. That's not who you're looking for. If you're looking for financial advice, you're not looking to the guy who's broke for financial advice. If you're looking for answers as to how to pull things together in your personal experience, you're not looking for the fool to help you with those decisions, right? Jesus says, look at the character of the messenger. Within the context of the local church, officers within the church, look at their life. Does it align with the qualifications the Bible sets forth for service in that capacity? With regard to the church at large, the members of the body, actively at work, evangelizing, counseling, and encouraging in the world around us, are they walking worthy of the calling with which they have been called? Does their life align with the teaching of the gospel? Are they bearing fruit worthy of repentance? With regards to friends and peers and the pressure that can come with that, even family, are, are they producing in their life the kind of fruit that you would seek to have? Or is there all, something altogether different going on in their experience? Now, I do think that Jesus is speaking proverbially. In other words, this is not hard and fast, but a statement of wisdom that holds to be true in many, many cases. And I'll tell you why I believe that. One, because it's stated as such, but by experience, the evidence is that you, you have seen, perhaps even encountered in your own life, that sometimes there are men who give themselves to the preaching of the true gospel who along the way experience a moral failure and seemingly undermine the entirety of their ministry. That's an exceptional situation, but those things do happen. That doesn't rob the gospel of its power. Even preached from the mouths of corrupt men, there is power in the gospel. Jesus used a donkey in the Old Testament <laughs> I'm certain he might use a broken and frail man in the here and now. Sometimes God strikes a straight lick with a crooked stick. Now, those ought to be exceptional situations, but they are exceptional situations that exist out there. And in my experience, they often unsettle the faith of those who perhaps believed through that ministry. You didn't believe in that pastor. You didn't believe in that preacher. You didn't believe in that evangelist. You believed in the gospel if you're saved of your sin. And then we've experienced that from time to time, wisdom will just accidentally slip through the lips of fools. Have you experienced that? Sometimes an unlikely candidate will say something that's wise, something that's edifying, something that's helpful. Those are exceptional situations. But in general, if you can't look out across the limbs of the prophet's life and find fruit worthy of repentance... Is it really sensible? Does it make sense that you would pattern your life after the message of that false prophet? Just be careful about the wells that you're drinking from, that you're not drinking from broken cisterns, but those that satisfy and nourish and quench an eternal thirst that exist within us. Be on guard, be careful, be watchful. The, the dangerous thing, and I, we, we convince ourselves that we're right so often when we're dead wrong. And I, I know, I, I feel fairly confident that in one of the three services that we've held today, there's been at least one person, and I'm being generous, there's a pretty strong likelihood that there have been a great number who've come and gone today convinced that they're right with Jesus when their heart is far from God. 
we were out yesterday. I think Jason mentioned this in the welcome this morning and got the chance to go and to knock on some doors and share the gospel. And I would invite you to join in those efforts as opportunities present themselves to be a part of that in the days ahead. But I, you would think based on conversation, and it's not just knocking on doors when you have these kinds of encounters. It's everywhere in northwest Mississippi, and it's really virtually everywhere in the south or the Bible Belt. But you would think just on the basis of conversation that it would be, it, it's hard to find lost people in northwest Mississippi. But let me tell you, based in reality, it's not hard to find lost people in northwest Mississippi. And some of them find themselves in the shadow of the steeple this morning in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You must know him. You must be born again. And you must know, brothers and sisters, listen, you must know that your sincerity cannot save you from your sin. It's a sincere faith in Jesus that rescues us from damnation. One, one of the vo most vivid memories from my childhood was an early morning knock at the door. I, I don't know how old I was, but I was pretty young, and the knock came at the door. And you know how kids do. Y'all press in behind mom and dad to find out what the news is, especially when it comes that early in the day. And it was a neighbor who'd come to tell my dad that his brother, my uncle, had been in a very serious car accident. And I can remember us going and seeing my uncle in, in the hospital. It was kind of a scary deal. First time I ever saw someone in an ICU and all the machines and things hooked up and kind of create a little panic when you're a kid. And he survived and is doing well today, bears a few scars and from time to time a little limp from the accident. But I, 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 can, I can remember so much, so many of the events around that. One, one of the more, I think maybe one of the reasons it stands out in my mind so much we moved shortly after that and became his neighbor, and me and a first cousin got together, and we got an old prescription pill bottle and went and collected all of his teeth off of the dashboard of that truck and took them to him. We were so proud. Here they are. It was a terrible, terrible accident. And I, I can remember them talking back and forth about how that unfolded. He got up that morning, went into work early. It was like 4 a.m. It's still dark outside, and he's traveling a road that he'd always traveled before. Anyone leaving our community, our neighborhood, going to that town would have gone that way. It was the sensible way to go. It was the most convenient way to go. It was the easiest way to go in the night hours. And it was a way that had served him well hundreds and maybe even thousands of mornings before traveling from home to work. And what, he, what he said after everything was said and done and talking through that accident and the way it went down, he goes around a blind curve and the bridge was out and he hit the other side of the bridge and, and the truck just bursted to pieces. I can remember going out and we picked up pieces of, of the engine block. That's how hard the impact was with the other side of the bridge. But this is what he said. He said, I never hit the brakes. He goes around the curve, bridge is not there, he's not expecting that, it's dark, and he never hit the brakes. And, and, and what I'm suggesting to you this morning is it on the basis of this passage and that proverb that we've referenced? There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Is that there'll be many, there'll be many who follow a path that leads to destruction and they'll never hit the brakes, having convinced themselves or having been convinced by false prophets that their heart is right with Jesus when they themselves are far from God. My challenge to you this morning, and I believe the passage makes this necessary, 
is that we examine ourselves to see that we are in the faith. I'm not asking if you had a vacation Bible school experience. I'm not asking if you attend church. I'm not asking if you pray periodically. I'm not asking you if you read your Bible. There, there is a folk religion. One of the false prophecies of our little culture is rooted in a folk religion that has co-opted the language of the Bible but knows nothing of the power of the resurrection. And often a part of that folk religion is a church attendance, a regular church attendance that helps to soothe the conscience and to ease our guilt over sin and shame and our distance from God. I don't care about those things. I'm asking you this morning, are you right with Jesus? Has there been a moment in time in your life when you turned away from the things of this world and unto Christ for the salvation of your soul? I'm not asking if you're good, if you've done better. I'm really not asking if you've made a decision. I hope that that aspect of Jesus' teaching has not been confusing to you this morning. Our goal is to not see decisions made, but disciples made. I'm asking, are you walking faithfully with Jesus? Has there been a moment in time when you believed the message of the gospel, that Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, lived without sin, died in our place, his dead body torn down from a cross where the just was given over for the unjust, buried in a borrowed grave, three days later to rise again? Have you entrusted your salvation to the finished work of Jesus Christ? There's, there's grace in Jesus, not just in what he's done in times past, but in his long-suffering and patience toward us. He invites us, even this morning, in spite of the things that we've done, the words that we've said, the foolishness that we've given ourselves over to, he invites us to come unto him. In fact, the first great gospel sermon said, the promise is to you, to your children, and your children's children to as many as the Lord our God would call. Would you come to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin? Come away from your destructive tendencies, from your destructive ways, and the road that leads to destruction. And embrace the difficulties and the challenges that may come with the narrow way, but that always end in resurrection life. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and the privilege of giving consideration to the teaching of our Savior this morning. God, I pray that by the work of your Spirit, you would seek out and save this morning, that the good shepherd would call the name of his sheep. God, that as they hear, they would respond in faith, they would answer his call and come. God, I pray that you would remind us as your people, those of us who have taken our refuge behind the blood of the Lamb, of what a sweet, sweet destiny it is that you have set for us. <clears throat> God, we're thankful that you have alleviated our blindness in sin and given us eyes to see. Help us, Lord, to rejoice this morning at the way you've caused the scales to fall away and given us the capacity to see ourselves for who we are and to see Christ for who he is. God, I pray that you would search us over Lord, that our want for sin would be no match for the Spirit's want for us, God, that you would lay hold of our hearts and call us unto you. Save to the uttermost, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.